Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Shawley. Thanks for all your lovely messages about Joe Lysett yesterday. Today, a nice long chat with some, somewhat, no, he's not that much like Joe Lysett. Ed Balls, former cabinet minister, turned dancer, turned chef. What's he going to do next? Really fascinating chat I recorded with him on board. We were both on the Times and Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival at sea. It was a lot of fun. We sailed on the QM2 from New York to Southampton. Uh, you'll be able to hear about our, our chat on board as we were surrounded by lots of writers and authors and that sort of thing. Uh, you can book if you want to if you want to go on the uh, the Literature Festival at sea next year. Uh, just Google details online. Right, uh, that's coming up in just a minute. Before that, though, as ever, we kick off with our columnists. The columnists on Times Radio. Yes, it's Tuesday, so it should be Finkelvich. We've got no Fink this week. We have got a, a live David Ivanovich in the studio. Good morning. A live bitch. <laughs> now to scratch it. How are you? I'm really good, thanks, man. Happy Christmas. Uh, yeah, but I was just thinking, it's also kind of a Hanukkah, etc. And uh, I was thinking, you don't get a, a kind of secret, what is the Jewish equivalent of secret Santa? I don't know, but you don't get, anyway, you only get a dreidel. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, playing the role of Daniel Fixler today, uh, she wasn't here yesterday, so she's here today. It's Rachel Sylvester. Morning, Rachel. Morning. Happy Christmas and other seasonal greetings to you as yeah, well. I'm sorry I'm not there. Well, you know. For the party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because because it's the la- this is our last live live doings because we, next week we've got the special Ooh, columnists focus group. Of course, yeah, yeah. Right, uh, let's talk about. Uh, I want to talk about Mick Lynch because he's been out and about this morning. There's just the slight sense that he might, if not be losing, just feeling the heat a little bit. This was Mick Lynch on Radio Four this morning. The, the question was about the average amount of pay lost by your members through strike action, which in the summer yeah, was you estimated at 50... That? So are you which, going to contribute to our I, hardship I, fund then? Is, is there an amount that, that in, in the summer, it was estimated as being an average well, amount of 1,500 pounds? Why are you pursuing this line, Michelle? Because you've why said, are you pursuing this line because, then, because in you've particular? Said, because you've said your members are making a sacrifice. And yeah, but I read this I'm, stuff in I'm, the Sun so and the Daily Mail. What's wrong with just saying, on average, our members have sacrificed X numbers of thousands of pounds? You've said they're making a sacrifice. What's wrong with putting a number on it? And then he went on Good Morning Britain. Well, we're not targeting Christmas. This, it isn't Christmas yet, Richard. I don't know when your Christmas starts, but mine starts on Christmas Eve. 
So we are striking at this time That's because we've not got Christmas, a settlement. Commercial Christmas and, starts in and, December. You know well, that perfectly well. You're being disingenuous. It's not disingenuous, is it? It is disingenuous. So, of course it is. Well, Christmas, commercial Christmas does not start on answer. Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve is when people Richard, shut early. Don't be ridiculous. Richard, you're just talking commercial to yourself Commercial Christmas starts at the end of November you're, and you're early ranting. December, and that's when people make their money, and you are Richard, depriving them of their now. income. That's the point. Right. Have you finished, then? <laughs> is, it, is he slightly feeling the heat? Is, is it mucking with Christmas, taking the shine off of uh, Mick Lynch a bit, do you think, David? Um, I just wondered about this, uh, really, because one of the things he's been famous for is duffing up presenters who have not done their homework properly, necessarily. Um, and I'd make a distinction between those two interviews. Richard Maley go, goes out there to have a bash-up, but Michelle Hussain on Today Program doesn't. She, what she's doing is she's asking questions which have, true, been raised by other people, but to which, which are perfectly reasonable questions to which Mick Lynch could give an answer. Either, so I thought one of two things, or maybe both. One, he's believing his own propaganda about how brilliant he is in duffing people up and the social media keeps on saying, isn't he great at doing it, and so on. Indeed, one person said immediately to me on Twitter, well, he wiped the floor with her. And I thought, well, why do you want to wipe the floor with a Today presenter? What's the point of that? That's not that's not what you're there for. Um, the second thing that I thought was, so the, believing your own propaganda is one, and the second thing that I thought was, is this getting to him? This is a long... I mean, this last bit of strike action is the most is most perilous. Now, if I was the government, what I would do is I would try and get a settlement as soon as possible and put off the business of reforms on the railways till the next time round when circumstances are not so bad in the economy and so on and everything wasn't kind of uh, uh, crowding in on you personally. That's why I'm sure Danny he would say the problem is inflation and maybe Rachel will, I don't know. Um, uh, but I just thought, yeah, the pressure's telling here. And actually, far be it for me to defend Richard Madeley, but the point that he was making is, uh, this time, you know, restaurants, shops, you know, this is an absolutely crucial time, particularly restaurants and bars. This keeps them open for half the year, this next period. And Christmas parties have been cancelled. People aren't going to be travelling uh, this weekend. It's an absolutely crucial weekend. And to claim that Christmas starts on December the 24th, even Mick Lynch knows that that's, uh, that's... That's that's true, but there are ways of saying that to Mick Lynch and so yeah. on, and you would have said it better. Well, that's, that's very kind. Uh, Rachel, what do you what do you think? Do you agree with, with David that the government should try and settle? But obviously you end up then, if they settle with uh, the RMT, then the nurses and the postman and whoever else will want, uh, will, will want their settlement as well. I think the key thing in terms of what the public feels is who sounds most reasonable and who is being most reasonable. And I thought in those interviews, Mick Lynch, he didn't really sound reasonable. He wasn't answering Michelle's Hussein's completely reasonable, sensible question. Um, he sounded very rattled in both of those interviews. And I think there's an interesting... Uh, the problem with the nurses is I think the government's looking unreasonable by not even agreeing to discuss pay at all. Um, and I think one reason which may explain um, Mick Lynch's tone is there's quite an interesting... in, in um, I was talking to someone in Whitehall who was saying there's almost a hierarchy of public opinion about the strikes. So right at the top of the people who uh, voters tend to support, and according to the polling, are the nurses. They're still sympathetic to their plight, even though the, RC, the, the RCN are asking for 19%. Voters are still quite willing to listen to the nurses, but they're not much less sympathetic to the train drivers um, and they're much more uh, angry about the disruption on the trains so I think that may explain 
his tone, but also that I think that overall the point is whoever looks and sounds most reasonable is the one that the public is going to support. It's really interesting you made that point. There was some uh, YouGov point of the Times last week asking exactly that question. Who, uh, on the question of nurses and ambulance workers, who is most to blame for the upcoming strike action? 17% said the unions, 46% said the government. But on the question of the Wells strikes... 31% blame the unions and 33%, so it's much more evenly divided. Exactly. So that's why he's rattled, because yeah. he feels he's losing the public. And that's only going to increase. The more people can't get to their, um, visit their, get to work, visit their families over Christmas, it's going to, uh, uh, the tipping point for the NHS will come if people, you know, really start dying and suffering and having things cancelled. That will then, there'll be a tipping point potentially. Uh, but I think if at that point the nurses and the unions start to sound reasonable and willing to compromise and the government still don't, then the government will still keep getting the blame. David? Well, part of the, I mean, part of the difficulty, I agree with that, but part of the difficulty is that in the NHS we're past that tipping point without them going on strike. Yeah. Uh, and that's really one of the one of the enormous difficult kind of background difficulties. So the, what the nurses say is, well, all this stuff is happening anyway. Um, and one of the reasons it's happening is you can't get enough nurses. And one of the reasons you can't get enough nurses is you don't pay them enough, so pay them more. Uh, and that's a very difficult logic. And, th and that logic is not easily countered by, by a whining pay review body, independent pay review body, every single mm -hmm. time the issue comes up. Nobody really knows what that means, but everybody suspects that the government sets the terms for the independent yeah. pay review. Well, as body. part of the terms of uh, terms of reference, they have to take into account the government's inflation target and the amount of money that the government set aside for the health service. So they can't say have a twenty percent pay rise, knowing how much money is in the pot. So that, that is one the of the considerations. The government quite often ignores the independent pay review bodies yes. anyway. So to, to sort of cling on to that, and then also the recommendation came before this huge inflation. So that it, in a way, I think that's a bit disingenuous. One idea that would be a sort of interesting compromise would be to say, OK, let's ask the pay review bodies to do a special uh, one-off recommendation now, taking into account the inflation figures. That would sort of come up with something more interesting, potentially. Uh, somebody's just uh, messaging, David is so weak. Why on earth would you bung the RMT yet more money without reforms? Demand for trains goes down with every work, uh, every work from home and every journey moved to cars. We always need modern contracts before they get any more money. Can I just say to that, um, I, I, whether I would, <coughs> whether I would or wouldn't, is not the issue. The issue is whether the government wants to do this now. Yeah. That's that's the point I was making. Uh, not everything has to be a trench warfare between two entrenched sides on an issue like this. You can kind of think around it a bit. Well, there we are. That's told whoever that was. No name on that one. And <laughs> uh, now a firm listener again to Radio Four. <laughs> No, they like it. They like it when you're rude to them. <laughs> I, bet, I bet John from Sheffield's listening, even though he hates hates the show. Uh, let's move on and talk about uh, more trouble from Rishi Sunak. It's not the unions, but there's sort of unions, unions and groups of Tory MPs. Uh, there's a, one launch of the weekend called Conservative Democracy Group, the CDG, spearheaded by Priti Patel. They want party members to have a say in who the leader is and uh, a change of direction and return to proper conservatism. Does um, Richard Sunak need to worry about this, Rachel? Well, I think he needs to worry about the fact that his party is completely out of control and lost all sense of discipline and desire to win an election. 
Um, and thinking about the Pretty Patel thing, which I think I'm writing saying is funded by or associated with Peter Crudders, who is a massive Boris Johnson supporter. Um, so I, I sort of detect trouble in that. Um, but, that, you know, the idea that more power to the small, tiny number of party members who brought us Boris Johnson and then Liz Truss over and above the heads of the MPs seems to me completely appalling and stupid idea. So it, Rishi Sunak does need to worry about it because it shows how dysfunctional his party be has become, but he also should hold the line and not kind of pander to them. It's interesting, this, isn't it? I mean, it is a, it is a Peter Crudders vehicle, and he's the top person in their on their website. And then there are a few more people I've never I've never really heard of. Um, and they're saying party democracy, etc. But all Crudders actually wants is the opportunity to bring Boris Johnson back because he's obsessed with it, and he's a billionaire, and he thinks that because he's a billionaire, he's made his way up. I mean, um, uh, the phrase I think we should now use for some people is uh, "rags to a hole," um, uh, really, because he's kind of made up his made. The, his way up he thinks he's entitled to do that and I suppose he's entitled to a view um the problem is this hits right into the middle of a debate in which the parties have more or less decided that this giving up these decisions to party activists and party membership has not really worked out terribly well um Liz Truss for the Tories Jeremy Corbyn for Labour uh, and true in reactions to Jeremy Corbyn you get Keir Starmer and they want to think about possibly other ways of doing it. so to give even more power to in the Tories case a shrinking number of party members and activists is really about as bad an idea as you could conceive of if you actually want to win general elections is a problem for them. The other thing that occurred to me is that if Boris Johnson had come back in October uh, un, un, without there being a vote of Tory party members, I suspect that Pritchard Patel and uh, Peter Cudders wouldn't be launching the Conservative Democracy Group demanding that Tory party members be given a say. Uh, no, no, I mean... I it's the, the, the driving force of this, Rachel, is that um, they, they didn't get the result that they wanted. It's a sort of... You know, you see this in so many things, whether it's you know, whether it's Brexit or, you know, um, that people don't like the, the, the result. And so they claim there was something wrong with that rather than, you know, about, they claim it's a point of principle, not just the fact that they, they've got Rishi Sunak and they didn't get Boris Johnson back. Yeah, exactly. It was Boris Johnson who said stick with Prit, didn't he, with Priti Patel when, when he refused to sack her, even though she was found guilty of bullying by the official inquiry. Um, and he lost his ethics advisor instead. So now it's sort of stick with Boris from Pretty, isn't it? Um, and Peter Crudus. Uh, but, I mean, if any party that wants to, is thinking about the sort of long-term future, both of their own electoral fortunes, but also the country, isn't going to be following an ever-narrow bunch of party activists and members, it seems to me. So it's, it's a kind of self-serving thing. Pretty Patel would be back in the cabinet if um, Boris Johnson got back into power, I guess. Rachel, it reminds me a little bit of the aftermath of the 79 election in Labour, really, in one way, which is that people are getting their narratives ready for defeat. Mm. Um, and the narrative that is going to come from a section of the right for defeat, obviously, is we were nothing like right-wing enough and we should have been more and so on. And this is the insurrection to try and bring the party back to itself after it's been betrayed by that terrible Remainer, Rishi Sunak, who obviously <laughs> it was, always, it was always a Brexiteer. <laughs> Unlike well, that terrible Brexiteer and Liz Truss. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. Uh, we'll see how, um, uh, what Rishi Sunak's got to say for himself. We've got the last PMQs of 2022 tomorrow. We'll bring you PMQs unpacked live. Rishi Sunak versus Keir Starmer 
as ever, we'll pause the action and analyse it in real time, making sense of what they're saying or not. And, of course, you can watch it live on the YouTubes as well. It's PMQ's Unpacked tomorrow here on Times Radio from uh, midday. Uh, let's turn our attention to, to the Labour Party then. What should we make of Wes Streeting? Rachel, is he going to be I... the next Labour leader? Or when uh, Keir Starmer is so far ahead in the polls, is that a daft question to even ask? No, I don't think it's a daft question. I think he's a really interesting character. I think he's... So his background is interesting. He's um, grew up in a really tough council estate in East London. His grandfather was a bank robber. His grandmother shared a cell in prison with Christine Keeler um, from the Profumo scandal. Um, so he he's a street fighter, politically and personally. It's a bit more interesting uh, than Liz Truss being in the Lib Dems at Cockney <laughs> University, isn't knows, it? <laughs> I think he's interested in winning. And on the NHS, he's got lots of quite interesting things to say. He's a reformer um, on public services. He's not just chuck more money at the thing. Um, so I think, you know, there isn't a leadership election in the, in the Labour Party, in the Tory Party, in the Labour Party at the moment. Um, but I think he is position. you know, he would be a candidate when Keir Starmer does uh, stand down and he'd be a credible one. I think he's an interesting politician. It's interesting that he had praise heaped on him at the weekend by the Sunday Telegraph, which he didn't sound entirely comfortable with, but it's a sign <laughs> that he's basically a Blairite. David, uh, in the in the purest sense that you have to win elections to, in order to achieve it. Uh, actually, and in the bolder sense, which is that you have to uh, adopt some quite bold positions and breaks with the past in order to get there, and you have to have a pretty sound political instinct <clears throat> for when you can do it and how you can do it. And he does... Uh, when Tony Blair... When I first noticed Tony Blair, it was because a shadow employment minister, he suddenly cut Labour adrift from its position on the closed shop for unions and said, we're not going to support this anymore. He had a reason to do it. And it had been such a big problem for Labour because it was been supporting this position that was essentially functionally illiberal, mm. that you had to be a member of the trade union before you could get a job or to stay in a job. Uh, and, he got, and, and, and you looked at it and you thought, yeah, OK, this guy knows, how, knows what he's doing and he's prepared to make the moves. And you feel the same. Wes Streeting has the same sorts of instincts, uh, etc., which obviously, you know, n knowing when to go in there and when not, etc., he got from his bank robber um, uh, grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hell of a story. If you need a backstory in... in, uh, in po but, I mean, to be honest, it's not hurting. You know, the, if you take the David Cameron approach, if you want... Was it the tall poppies? Whatever, the big beasts around the cabinet table. It doesn't hurt Keir Starmer. He's not the most exciting man in the world. Uh, if there are some interesting characters who are big thinkers and good communicators, well, you want that in the team. I mean, just coming before Rachel does, uh, Wes is, um, I think, he's pretty young, and I think he, uh, my instinct is he's content to, to wait. And Keir Starmer also has people around like Pat McFadden, uh, who's been around a long time, who is very content to be a thinking person in the shadow cabinet. I think there are a number of others that Rachel will know that I'm not so familiar with um, uh, who fulfil the same function. I think that's right. And um, I don't think Wes Streeting is agitating to become leader. They all feel quite, they're just excited by the thought potentially of getting into government at the moment uh, on the shadow cabinet. They're not all agitating for who should take over from Keir Starmer. Um, but the other thing that's interesting about Wes Streeting is he had cancer last year. Um, and it, it wasn't an entirely fantastic experience with the NHS. So he spoke about even just um, very recently, he had a test and they hadn't done processed the results so he understands that the problems he doesn't see it as a religion um so he's willing to look at uh new 
uh, approaches. And I think that makes him a really, um, that's quite a good way to think about health policy. Rachel Sylvester and David Ivanovich there. Of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is Ed Balls. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to the Redbox podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Now, I might have mentioned this once or twice, but last week I was away. I was on a transatlantic crossing from New York to Southampton as part of the Times and Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival at Sea. Uh, lots and lots of times, two and a half thousand Times readers, Times Radio, now all, all converted brainwashed Times Radio listeners as well. And it was absolutely packed with authors and writers and journalists. We had lots of uh, fascinating uh, chats. Now, I sat down with one of them, Ed Balls. I mean, he's now an entertainer, basically. Uh, and since he had no way to run, we sat down in a, a slight, turned out to be slightly noisier than expected, uh, one of the bars on uh, the Queen Mary 2. A bit of a chat, uh, covering everything from his, uh, the slightly surreal experience of being on balls and a bit of politics, too. Sitting, looking out at the Atlantic with Ed Balls, politician, dancer, journalist, cook, raconteur, cruiser, cru- and now cruiser. Um, what on earth are we doing on this boat, Ed Balls? We've been here for a very long time. <laughs> we we have. Um, I have never ever crossed the Atlantic by sea before. I've sailed before in the Channel. Uh, I've flown across the Atlantic, but. You know, it's been uh, it's been very long. This journey. Yeah, it has been very long, and partly because there's no there's no way of knowing where we are because it's just the same every day. Well, the thing is, it's not my first cruise. Um, I went on a cruise with my parents and uh, Yvette when our first daughter was very tiny, but this was a Mediterranean cruise, so it genuinely was the case 
that um, every morning when you woke up from your balcony you you had a different you know it was, it was like being in a different hotel yeah. every day a different harbor or port or something beautiful whereas every morning here when you wake up and you look out it's the sea <laughs> and it's the same sea as yesterday and there is slight differences because sometimes it's a bit more sunny and sometimes it's been a bit more choppy a bit a bit choppy the, the other thing about that cruise though this is an italian cruise um in the late 90s which was it was not like this cruise which is rather kind of luxurious and and fancy and where Matt let's be honest we're at the younger end um, <laughs> this was a an Italian Costa cruise where where most people who came on the cruise were newly married couples and they would come down from their wedding parties in Naples or Sicily and then they would throw from the um, top of the ship the, the, the bouquet off to the gathered wedding party before being on their honeymoon our um, our six-week-old daughter is in countless honeymoon videos while where new brides showed off their baby holding prowess and what can I say Matt um, the ship rocked at night even on the calmest of seas <laughs> so it was um, it was a very different experience on that one we felt you know quite old yeah yeah was uh, we definitely feel very young on this one yeah but it's been really good the food yeah. is amazing we just can't stop eating and of course we've been at the Times Cheltenham Literary Festival at Sea. So there's been, you know, a whole, you know, plethora of yeah. fabulous talks and chats. And what do you? I was thinking about this because I've, I've been to several of the, the talks, things you've been doing, and you talk about politics, and you talk about strictly, and you talk about food. If you're filling in a form and it says Ed Ball, name Ed Balls, occupation, yep. what do you put now? Well, now I would put former professional dancer retired <laughs> because I am a retired former professional dancer I did dance professionally in yeah. fact in an arena tour of the yeah, nation yeah. I've played the O2 four yeah. times plus Glasgow uh, Leeds and Sheffield and um, and I'm afraid tragically although as I've discovered over the course of these last few days you know, I like to think that I've been invited here because you know I'm a former cabinet minister to reflect upon education the state of politics I'm a professor at King's College London to talk about um, the state of global populism and political economy but actually the only thing people want to know is what was it like doing a Gangnam Style <laughs> and um, can you demonstrate the char 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 so I'm afraid you're a broadcaster writer economist former professional dancer retired and I, I, I've now ticked off the bucket list dancing with Ed Balls in you the discotheque I've got to say that as well um, it was memorable <laughs> and fabulous and in in the proper use of the word fantastic in the sense of not quite of this world it was like a fantasy it was I've never seen some, somebody I mean you had great rhythm yeah and there was a lot of movement <laughs> I overheard the morning after I overheard you describing it to someone as astonishing <laughs> which I'm taking as a compliment at a certain point um, my cruise companion elbowed me and said just watch this <laughs> and so we did and of course your cruise companion is your daughter I said to I said to Yvette I said it's actually me plus one um, I said would you like to come and spend a week in early December away from Parliament traveling on a luxury liner across the Atlantic you know of course you know your constituents you know would need to um, send uh, emails you on the boat and you know, Parliament would have to do without you and Yvette said absolutely no way could I possibly travel halfway around the world to enjoy myself at leisure and um, support your you know 
fee-making career while ignoring Parliament and my constituents. And this was before Matt Hancock, Matt Hancock. had gone to the it, jungle. It wouldn't so look quite bad if she had she, said yes. She, 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 thought, she saw Hancock. the writing yeah. on the wall. She, 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 she made the right call. Uh, so let's talk about, let's talk about politics. Because you mentioned, yeah, but let's talk about your, your serious view of politics. It, it struck me, what, 25, 26 years ago right now, you were in opposition advising Gordon Brown. Labour Party miles ahead in the polls after the Tories had a series of catastrophic prime ministers and economic uh, failures. How do you not muck that up? Because actually, there's obviously, if you're miles behind the opposition, there's a challenge in catching up. But if you're miles ahead, there are challenges there as well. So I think, you know, in that period, 95 to 6, 7, um, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, they never really believed Labour was going to win. They were, they were never complacent about that because, of course, they'd lived through the run-up to the 92 election when Neil Kinnock was the leader and people thought Labour would win because yeah. the economy was having a big recession and then Labour lost that election. And so people like myself, uh, Jonathan Powell for Tony Blair, spent like two years planning for government. But that wasn't something that Gordon and Tony were, almost allowed themselves to do. But something had changed in that period. You know, um, in the run up to 92, it wasn't clear Labour was going to win, yeah. really. But then Black Wednesday occurred when Britain crashed out of the exchange rate mechanism. And after that, I don't think the Conservatives ever recovered. You know, Ken Clark, I think, was always frustrated as Chancellor. I'm doing all the right things. You know, I'm running the economy well. But the polls never came back for the Conservatives. And it does feel for um, Labour as though we may have gone through that transition in the last few months. Back in August, Labour was ahead in the polls, but I don't think people thought Labour was necessarily going to win at all. Um, before Boris went, could Boris do his magic? Yeah. Uh, Rishi Sunak, you know, um, if he won, Liz Truss, you know, was going to win the leadership election. Yeah. The events of September and that moment when suddenly people saw their interest rates going up, worrying about their mortgages, the economy in chaos, the pound collapsing. I don't think we've seen a moment like that in British politics since, I would say, um, the, the queues to get your money out of Northern Rock at the beginning of the financial yeah. crisis, or Black Wednesday, 15%, 18% interest rates. And when those moments happen, you, know, you can have a shift politically. And that's why I think for Rishi Sunak, his big frustration will be He's trying to stabilise things with Jeremy Hunt, but the polls aren't recovering. Mm. And it does look like, um, if, compared to the summer, this is now Labour's election to lose, rather than you know, a real challenge for Labour to win. That changes the whole dynamic for Keir yeah. Starmer and, um, and for Rachel Reeves and the team. And I, I saw this um, the beginning of the week. We were doing an event um, here at the festival, talking about what's in the news that day. And it was the day in which the uh, Keir Starmer was publishing his commission on constitutional change, the Gordon Brown Commission. And all the questions he got on the Today programme that day were questions which you would ask somebody who could well now be yeah, the next yeah. Prime Minister, what are you going to do, what's your prior priority, yeah. how will you manage that? I think he probably had a degree of scrutiny on Monday which was materially different to anything he's experienced so far. And it is interesting because suddenly the framing of everything changes. The without anyone really thinking about it, all the journalist questions, the polling questions, the public questions on question time, whatever it might be, are all based on the 
assumption that Labour yep. are going to win, which suddenly changes everything. And that it, it, it's the question then is, well, why are you going to do that in your first term? Because mm. we've all accepted the concept of the first term. That's already a given. And it, and it is. It goes to that the point about um, complacency because if all you're focused on is winning the election, yeah. you say what you need to say to win the election. But for the first time, Kiss thinking, but if we do win the election, what would a manifesto commitment to abolishing the House of Lords mean for yeah. the, the, the first year of a government, relations within Parliament, relations with um, the wider Labour Party, how the country perceives um, what my priorities are. You know, people might be thinking, sort out the economy or productivity or jobs, and I'm doing this constitutional change. Yeah. And I don't think he's had to think about that in quite that way uh, before. Uh, it is different. The other thing which is really important and very hard for um, opposition politicians is that if you are the Prime Minister and the Chancellor, you've always got another go. So you can, I mean, look, this year we've had yeah, yeah. the Conservative goes. Party having yeah. lots of Prime Ministers and lots of Chancellors, but um, they just had a, an autumn statement. They've got another budget in the new year. So they can say things now, but they can come back, Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt, and say in March, this is now the way forward. Yeah. This is our decision. Whereas if you are the, 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 the leader of the opposition, everything you say can't be the right thing to say today it's also because there's going to be no getting getting away from it. You can't re-announce um, your priorities in three months in quite the same way. Everything you say now will be with you on election day. So the temptation to rush out and say, "Here's the plan. Yeah. Here's what we do." You, uh, the danger is it happened to Labour in 1992. Um, Neil Kinnock and John Smith had made big commitments on child benefit and pensions. Um, two years before, which cost billions of pounds. By the time we got to the election, when the economy was in real trouble and people worried about jobs, they've had these massive commitments on things which didn't feel like the number one priority. Yeah. So you have to be really careful that you um, that, that everything you say you know will still be the right thing to have said in one and a half, two years' time. That's Ed Pauls speaking to me on boards the Times and Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival at sea on the Queen Mary 2. You sat around the shadow cabinet table with Rachel Weeds, who's now got your old job the shadow chancellor. Is there part of you that, that wishes you were still in Parliament and you could be sitting around the shadow cabinet table, you could be preparing for government? Well, Rachel Reeves was the, the shadow chief secretary yeah. when I was um, chancellor, and so she worked very very closely with me uh, and she was and then she she did really well yeah. and went on to do I think shadow work and pensions, work and pensions and Chris yeah. Leslie took over so you know uh, the, the thing I feel when I see her on television and in parliament and look at the shadow cabinet is I think you know somebody who I work closely with and you know I try to pass on a lot of things that I've learned 20 years ago she's she's taking that and she's doing it in her own way and she's doing really well so I feel you know I feel much more pride than I feel uh, envy and I know what it was like because um, you know n not in the in in the shadow cabinet but in that run up to 97 I mean and going into the Treasury I was there for eight years we had a huge majority we were able to re to reshape the whole of British economic policy and um, and the economy was improving the public finances were getting better so we had lots of um, of, of, of opportunity I think I think for for this Labour uh, opposition, the 
the likelihood is that the economic and fiscal inheritance is going to be much tougher. Mm. And it means that those questions of um, priority and um, working out what you really want to do are, are even more acute than they were in the run up to 1997. Look, of course, there's a part of me which is kind of envious because being in government, those eight years at the Treasury, being a cabinet minister, easily the um, hardest things I ever did in my life, but also the most fulfilling, the most important, if you're motivated by public service, you know. But I think in life, it's always better to think, I'm proud of what I've done and what's the next thing. What about if, because there have been rumours about David Miliband, somebody's suggested David Miliband might want to return, isn't it? But I'm not completely convinced by that. There's a certain group of people who always think that David Miliband might be about to return. But if Keir phoned you up and said, Ed, I've got you a safe seat. If you want it, you can come back. Would you go back into politics? May I ask you, Matt, yeah. how many times have you read in the Times a story which said David Miliband <laughs> may be about to return to British politics? I am aware that it's, it's wishful times? thinking. How many times have you read that? Maybe, I know. Maybe 40? Yeah. Maybe 60? But he still, he, he, he still many, could. I know, but, you know, I mean, that is true. That is true. And, you know, I mean, you know, if you read Revelations, <laughs> I, I, look, who, who knows? Oh, no. I mean, look, the, the, the truth is that um, we need people who are committed to public service to yeah. do the biggest jobs. And, um, you know, so I don't know what um, David is going to do or other people who are around back then. You know, the, the interesting thing is I think only Yvette and Ed Villaband were in the, um, the cabinet yeah. um, last time round. So um, having some of those um, people with that experience is always a good thing, but you know, um, I think it's always dangerous in life to sit around waiting for the call. Yeah. Because you know, probably might, might not come. If the phone doesn't ring. Yeah. What are you going to do? I later? spent I spent um, thirty six hours in my office waiting for the call from Tony Blair in April two thousand six. I'd only been an MP for nine months, and. Um, there's a reshuffle. Been lots of speculation. I might get a job. Finally, after um, waiting for 36 hours, the phone rings. My office called through and say it's number 10. Long wait, 10 minutes. Finally, a voice says, "Hi, Ed. It's Tony," and it was Tony Blair. And he said, um, "I've been thinking very hard about how to use your particular skills and talents." Slightly double-edged because um, you know <laughs> there'd been a few issues in the past. <laughs> because not, you, not were, least, you were in team team brand, team brand not at least over the he, year. You'd been in the treasury and all of that before, so, so that's so, where the tension. So was. he says, um, I've been thinking how to use your particular skills and talents. He said, I would like you to be a, a junior business minister for my government in Northern Ireland. <laughs> and I remember thinking, what? Northern Ireland? I mean, three kids under ten. How have you managed that? But I said to him, look, Tony, uh, you know, no, I said, prime minister. I said, you know, I would be be proud to serve your government in Northern Ireland as a junior business minister. And I just, then I then said, actually, Tony, if I'm honest with you, it's the job I've always wanted. <laughs> <laughs> it's what you say. And there was a pause on the phone, and then he went, ah, gotcha. <laughs> Only joking, it's the Treasury and hung up. And that's how I got my first ministerial job. So I've been used to waiting for the waited call. By, waited by the phone. And uh, there we <laughs> Ebbles, let's move on and look at what's happened Move since. on. I've got to say, you look out the window. When you look out the window here, and you say, move on, we slowly chug along. <laughs> We are sort of moving on. We are. We're now well over halfway we across the Atlantic. Well so over halfway. We're, 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 we're making progress on this cruise. You still want to fall in here? No, no. It definitely looks a bit cold. So let's talk about what's happened since you left politics, or since the the voters in your constituency. Yep. Uh, left the good you. Good voters of Morley. Morley. 
Um, what's been the most ridiculous thing, the situation you found yourself in since, that you would never have dreamed would have happened as a cabinet minister? Is I mean, it strictly? The problem is, oh no, it's not strictly. Oh, it's not strictly. Oh, the list is so long. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I can't really, I mean, there are so many. I think, I think sitting in business class on an aeroplane, pulling down the, um, the, the kind of little divider thing on the plane and having a chat with Jade from Little Mix <laughs> about our shared nerves about the prospect of climbing Kilimanjaro was, you know, I think, but then, then when we'd, you know, for comic relief, raised our two million pounds, going on television and then being inspired live on BBC to do a, um, you know, a quick, a quick rendition with Little Mix of one of their hit songs. I shouldn't have sung. I don't know, I, it, was, it was an error. Um, so that, that is definitely up there. Um, I, think, I think actually, now I think about it, um, this was actually one where my agent said, don't do it. But I said, I can't resist. Call from the BBC. We are arranging the, the Queen's 92nd, I'm actually the Queen's 92nd birthday concert at the Royal Albert Hall, which we broadcast live on television. Would you be willing in two weeks to learn the banjo ukulele and play live on stage with Frank Skinner, yeah, Harry this, Hill, and this. 30 members of the George Formby Society? And I said, what song are we playing? Because that was important. And they said, when I'm cleaning windows. And I thought, it's a cracker. Yeah. And so I was in and I, I learned the banjo. So you, I, you hadn't played it before? No. Right. I had this brilliant guy came down from the Northwest, gave me three lessons. I cracked it. And um, I mean, you know, thank God there was another 45 yeah. of them thrashing away. I uh, learned all the words. And, um, but that moment when I think, I can't remember who was the compare, um, something very famous, and said, what are you doing here? And in front of yeah. the nation. And I said, I'm just, just celebrating the Queen's birthday. Anyway, afterwards, um, we then had to gather behind the stage to go back on for the encore. And um, as we're standing there, Prince Charles and Her Majesty the Queen come forward because they're about to go on. Prince Charles is going to lead happy birthday. He sees me and he came over and said, Eddie said, what on earth are you doing here? What are you doing? And I said, I don't know. And I think, I think, you know. Because presumably you'd had dealings with him as a cabinet minister. Lots of times. Yeah. I'd seen Prince Charles very many times because he was very interested in education. He wrote me letters, but also we went on yeah. visits and trips together. And I'd seen, you know, Her Majesty the Queen. I'd been to Privy Council meetings lots and lots of times. So in that sort of professional context, I'd seen them very many times. But there was I in a waistcoat. <laughs> and I'm not sure it was a bow tie, it may have been, but with my, with my banjo with my banjo ukulele um, and so when the future sovereign said why I found myself unable to answer yeah and I think probably that is that feels like one of them I think that that may be the most absurd although as we were discussing on Monday because we were we were um, at that that headlines event on Monday yeah, yeah. and there was there was a story in the paper about Frank Skinner. About Frank Skinner. That he'd uh, done the Royal Variety performance with a sore throat uh, and they'd sung Three Lines, which obviously you insist is called. Football's it's called, Coming Home. But it's called Three Nobody Lines. Nobody knows it as Three Lines. Well, apart from everybody who knows what it's called, it's called Three Lines. And he, he'd been very ill. He'd been very ill, but he'd done it anyway, because the show must go on. 
and then it, he comes off stage and Edward and Sophie were doing the lineup, and Sophie you mean, Wessex you mean Prince Edward and yes, exactly. the Duchess of Wessex uh, Wessex yeah. uh, and she goes up to Frank Skidder and just says well that wasn't very good was it <laughs> don't give up the day job you're probably not used to doing things in front of a live audience because you're more on the telly and he pointed out he'd been a comedian for 30 years playing the Palladium and everything else and it got us talking about well we then went down a rabbit hole Mark Frank Skidder and the Royals <laughs> see the thing is I mean, Frank is, is, is a great royalist. He's also, by the way, a great player of the banjo ukulele and has, in his career, been many times to um, George Formby Society annual thrashers where he plays the um, George Formby songs. So we're standing behind the stage, about to go on for the encore. I'm just recovering from having stepped on Kylie Minogue's dress, um, <laughs> which then slightly tore yeah. and caused a bit of consternation. Sting was furious with me. And um, so, there we are. I've just had my Prince Charles, um, now of course our King, moment where he said to me, why? And then the signal goes for us to move forward. We're all supposed to move onto the stage. And of course the last people to come on will be Prince Charles and Her Majesty the Queen. But Frank had got waylaid talking to some producer slightly behind us. And we signaled to move on. So I turn and say, Frank, come on. And Her Majesty the Queen, seeing what's just happened, turns and says much more loudly, Oi, Frank, come on! <laughs> really loudly, Frank, come on! And waves her hand. And Frank's going to turn around, thinking it's me, and sees Her Majesty the Queen <laughs> gesticulating to him aggressively. Get on with it! You're holding us up. She couldn't get on the stage until Frank... I've never seen a man move so fast <laughs> to get on stage. It was... It was astonishing, um, but um, so he's, you know, it's not the first time he's had a run-in with senior royals. Uh, and Balls, what an absolute delight. Thanks so much for uh, chatting to me on Times Radio. Thank you. Well, that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, can you get to number 10? Email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio, and we'll get you on very soon. <laughs>